0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is uh, to know you and to know something of ourselves. But Lord, we recognize that our knowledge is not complete. There there is still much for us to learn about ourselves and about yourself. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Teach us from your word and help us to be stronger in the faith as a result of coming before you and listening to your voice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're taking a break from our series in Hebrews and coming to an Old Testament book. Uh, Last week I did speak on Hebrews chapter 11 and we were reminded of the importance of the Old Testament and learning from the people of the Old Testament. And so I thought it would be a good exercise for us to go back and look at the small book of Ruth together and glean what we can uh, from it as to how we should be living to God's glory. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 1. We'll be looking at the whole chapter together, and so I encourage you, if you've got a Bible there, particularly a church one, open it up to page 258 as we look through this chapter together. And many of you may be very familiar with the book of Ruth. You may know something of who Ruth is. But when we look at chapter 1, Ruth isn't really the main character of chapter 1. Instead, it is her mother-in-law... Naomi, who is the main ca- character of chapter one, who we're brought to firstly, and then we see a development in her over the chapter. And it's a surprising development that goes on, because when we look at Naomi at the beginning, life seems pretty good in many respects. Uh, it seems that uh, her, she's living up to her name. She's got a husband, she's got two sons, and so her name, which means pleasant, seems to be something that he's describing of her life. But it's interesting, by the end of the chapter, by the end of chapter one, Naomi no longer wants to be called Naomi. Instead, we read in verse 20 of Ruth chapter one, "Don't call me Naomi," she told them, that's the other Israelites, "Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. If you don't know Hebrew, the word Mara. It does have a little footnote in the NIV text as to what it means, uh, but the text does tell you somewhat of it yourself, verse 20. It means bitter. So she's gone from being pleasant to being bitter. And so there's a change that happens over chapter 1 to Naomi. And there's a number of things that happen to her in chapter 1 that we would say are bitter experiences. They are sad, painful experiences that she has. We see these as we look through the text together. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth, we see that life is not altogether good if we consider the period that she lived in. What does it say in verse 1 of Ruth, chapter 1? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Here we see a couple of things, even in verse 1, that demonstrate that life is not all that pleasant for Naomi. Firstly, she's in the period when judges ruled. Now, you may not know uh, the period of judges that well, but it's a time when there was great turmoil, turmoil in Israel. Again and again, if you read the book of Judges, it says there is no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you read the book of Judges, you see some horrible things happening between the people of Israel and other nations that come in the way they treat god and the way they treat one another towards the end of basically judge the way it ends is all out civil war and almost a whole tribe of israel is exterminated as a result of the chaos that is happening in that period and so ruth is living in a time that is not the most pleasant time of israel to live in moreover there's a famine in the land which means that it's very hard to find things to eat and to the point where Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, decide that they will actually leave the promised land, the land that God gave them as an inheritance, and go and live in the land of Moab, which is really an enemy of Israel. And so he goes and lives in the country of Moab. Now, this is a terrible experience to go through. We often don't feel that experience of famine, In our lives, I've never experienced a time of great loss of food where I'm wondering where my next meal will be coming from, but that's what was happening here for Naomi and her family where food was a scarcity and that's not a pleasant experience to go through. Also, while she's in the land of Moab, some further pains come into her life. We read in verse 3, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. So while she's there, her husband passes away. But she's still got her two sons. Life is bitter to one extent, but there's still some pleasantness there. She's still got her two sons. And they get married, we see in verse 4. They, those two sons, married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. But after they had lived there about 10 years, both Marlon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. A hard time for Naomi. Yes, her husband passes away. She's still got her two sons. They get married. But then it's interesting. They live for 10 years and there's no grandsons, no granddaughters come along. 10 years may seem like a short period to some of us, but if you're married for 10 years and no kids show up, that can be a bitter experience in itself. And then we see that the sons themselves pass away. And it may be that those sons were always rather sickly. The name Marlon actually means sickly, and the name Kilion means mortal or frail. So these two boys may have been born, and it was quite clear from soon after they were born that they were children that were quite weak. And so it's been a bitter experience for Naomi. She's watched these sons grow up, and thankfully they've reached adulthood and they get married, but then they pass away. And so she is left without her two sons and her husband in verse five, and we know that she can't suddenly start a new family. Um, she's gotten to an age now where she says, "I can't get married and have kids any longer." She actually says this in verses twelve and thirteen when she's talking to her daughters-in-law. She says, "Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I were there, thought, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons." Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. She recognises that she can't start anew, that this is it. She's going to be left a widow and someone who is childless. And this is an awful situation for Naomi. Naomi. Widows in that culture at that time were without all social, political and economic status. It's a terrible position for a woman to be in. It's equivalent of the homeless in our society where you're completely dependent upon the state, which in our society isn't so bad, there are benefits, but in that time there was no centrelink, there was no provision. You were dependent upon those around you. And remember where she is. Where is she? She's in Moab. She's not in Israel. She's not amongst her relatives. She's in a very terrible state right here at the end of verse 5. And we too can know something of that pain as well. We too can have experiences like Naomi. We can live in a nation with no clear leader where people are taking advantage of one another Thankfully, in Australia, we have the blessing of having clear political leaders. We trash them a lot, but thankfully, we are a fairly stable society. But not everybody experiences that around the world at this time. There are people who are not sure what's going to happen to them next, who is going to come in and take advantage of them. And sometimes we can even lack the basic necessities in this world. Even in Australia. Yes, food is generally something that is abundantly provided for in this country, but something like housing? There are homeless here in Sydney, many of them. And even at my time here at Des Moines Baptist, I've known at least one member who has lived on the streets of Sydney. We can go through such pain where we don't have the basic necessities that we need. And then we can lose the people that we love through death or separation, people that are dear to us, like Naomi, her husband and her children. We can experience that too, and it's a real pain. And we can have unfulfilled marriage plans. You see here with Naomi, she's, I'm sure, got all these dreams about living happily with her husband for many years, seeing her children get married and have kids. And we can share such plans as well, have wonderful marriage plans. But some of us, we have these marriage plans and we don't actually get married. Or we have unhappy marriages or failed marriages through separation or through death, as Naomi experienced. And you have great ideas about the children that you'll have and the grandchildren that you'll have. And one day you'll be gathering around a Christmas tree together and enjoying those experiences that... We have in our minds the dreams that we have, and they don't come to fulfillment, like Naomi didn't enjoy. We can see something of ourselves in the life of Ruth here as well. And these are real pains that she's going through, and that we can experience as well, and we should acknowledge the pain that they are. As Christians, we're not people who are like the Stoics and think that it doesn't matter. That if we simply focus on virtue in some way, that everything else will be in the periphery and we don't acknowledge the pain, the unfulfilled dreams that we wanted. And we don't become like the Christian scientists. have got to be careful about that. You might think they're scientists who are Christian. There is a cult known as Christian Science. And they believe that the body should be ignored and that pain is just in the mind and we shouldn't acknowledge the pain, we should get rid of it and when you've got cancer you shouldn't think about it that it's not a real problem, it's all in the mind but this is not the way the Bible presents life no, pain is real and it should be acknowledged that when we go through suffering it's a real experience it's a real pain and it should be acknowledged So what do you do in the face of such suffering? Well, one thing that we should do is acknowledge that God's hand is even in suffering. That God's hand is involved in the pain in our lives. And you see this with Naomi. We can be like Naomi. We should be like Naomi and recognize God's hand in suffering. What does she say in verse 13, that verse that I read out before? She's talking to her daughters-in-law and then she says at the end, the last sentence of verse 13, Ruth chapter 1, It is bitter for me than for you. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. She recognises that the Lord's hand has done this to her. And then if you look down with me at verses 20 and 21 when she talks about her name change, what does she say? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Shaddai has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty Shaddai has brought misfortune upon me. See again and again, she's not afraid to say that this is the Lord's hand that has brought the pain and suffering into her life. And it's funny, we as Christians, we seem to have this impression that God's hand is not in pain and suffering. We want God, if he is a good God, then he should make our lives heaven now. We should be experiencing heaven on earth, and there should be no pain, no suffering for Christians, if he's a good and all-powerful God. And so many people have all kinds of theological hoops that they try and make God jump through so that they can then justify the pain and suffering in their life. One of the clearest examples of this is where people talk about free will, the free will of humans, and that somehow lets God off the hook for the pain and suffering that goes on in our lives. God has given us free will and he can't be responsible for the things that we do, and so when pain and suffering comes into our life, it's not God who's involved in that, it's all down to us and our free will. There's a popular... Theological movement called open theism, which basically promotes this kind of understanding. Open theism has the idea um, theism means God. It's the Greek word for God, Theos. Open theism. God doesn't actually know what you're going to do because you've got free will. And so what is God doing all the time? Well, he's watching you, you're making decisions, and then he's responding with the power that he has. That's very popular in theological circles. You may not have heard of it because you come to a good, solid church. But if you read on the internet, you visit other churches, as people react to the pain and suffering in their lives, this is where they start to move. We've got to look for another answer. It can't be God's hand in my pain. It has to be something to do with me and my free will. And you see this in the prosperity gospel teaching, which is much more prevalent than open theism in one respect. You can go to churches here in Sydney that will teach you that God wants to make you happy. God is going to make your life pleasant. It's going to be Naomi. Your life is going to be a Naomi life because God wants to make you happy. But then pain comes into your life. Why is that? Oh, It's because you don't have enough faith. It's all down to you. If you believed God more, then things would go well for you. God is standing there. He's always wanting to make you happy. He never wants to make your life sad. He never wants to make your life painful. He never wants to make your life a life of suffering. It's all you if you're experiencing that. And then, of course, there's people who try and remove God's hand from suffering by putting forward the idea that God is not the all-powerful being that he is. uh, There's other forces out there, and they're evil forces, that Satan and God... They're wrestling it out. We call this dualism, that there's an evil force and there's a good force and they're in combat with one another all the time. And so when you've got pain and suffering in your life, it's because the bad guy's winning at the moment and the good guy can't do anything about it. He's on the back foot at this time. And people then justify the pain in their life saying, oh, God wants to help me, but he can't because Satan's more powerful at this stage. And then, of course, there's people who deal with pain and suffering in their lives by removing God from the equation altogether. This is atheism, where you say, there is no God. And it's because of pain and suffering in my life that I know there is no God. And so it's a theological argument, ultimately. Even though they're saying there is no God, they say, well, remove God altogether. My pain proves that there is no good, all-powerful God. But it's funny, if you go down that path, you should ask then, if there is no God, then why is pain and suffering a problem? Why is pain any different from pleasant feelings? If there is no God, what do we judge good and bad as? Why is pain suddenly bad and the absence of pain good? Why is it not that pain is good? As the gym person knows, you know, gets a bit of pain, it's a good thing. Feel an ache the next day, that's a good thing. How can we say that all pain and suffering is bad if there is no God? I've never met an atheist who didn't think that suffering wasn't bad. Why is that? I think the question that we ask about pain and suffering proves that there is a God. That there is a God. Because we then know in our heads that there is evil, there is There are things that are bad in this world, and God gives us a reason for that. So we've got these other options. But if you come to the Bible, you have to recognise that pain is part of God's plan for the people of this earth. That suffering is a part of their lives. And when you are in pain, that it's God's hand. Can you admit that? Can you admit that the Lord's hand is in your pain, the suffering that you're going through? Whether it be the necessities that you have, bodily health, or the relationships that you're going through that are not what they should be, can you admit that it's God's hand in that? That God has brought those problems into your life? Naomi can. Can you? Maybe you struggle to do so because you're still asking the question, why? Why? Why, God, would you allow me to suffer? Why would you bring pain into my life? Why would you not make my life heaven on earth now? Well, there's a number of reasons that the Bible speaks about the pain and suffering in our lives. I'll give you two this morning. Sometimes pain comes into our life, the Bible tells us, because of unrepentant sin. Because of sin that we've committed, God does bring pain into our lives. And it may be that the death of Naomi's husband and her sons were the result of sin. Seems harsh. But there's many people who look at a passage like this and go, was it right of Elimelech to take his family to Moab? Remember God had promised the Israelites this land of Canaan and when they went into that land they were meant to stay there. That was their land that God had given them. And as soon as some suffering comes along, Elimelech says, let's go. Let's leave the land of Canaan. Was that the right thing for him to do, to take his children, to take his family down there? Now, I'm not so certain we can just point the finger at Elimelech there. We know that Abraham went down to the land of Egypt when there was famine. Jacob and his whole clan went down. When there was suffering, he went and got his son Joseph to provide for them. We know that Jesus himself, Joseph, took him from Herod's clutches, took him to Egypt. God's people do move out of the promised land in times of suffering, and it's very hard to judge if his children were sickly from a young age and there was no food in Israel. The man was concerned about his wife and his kids. Is it clear-cut that he shouldn't have left the land? But what about the fact that his sons got married to Moabite women. Aren't there laws in the Old Testament about marrying women of foreign nations? Was it right for those two sons to marry wives that would be worshipping the Moabite gods? And it appears when you read the text, when Naomi says, go back to your gods, it appears that They probably were still worshipping the Moabite gods. Was it that the death of Marlon and Killian was because they'd actually married people that they weren't supposed to marry? Now, we can't draw solid conclusions on that, but we know in other parts of the Bible that, yes, God does bring suffering into people's lives because of unrepentant sin. And if you were suffering, if you were going through bodily pain, if you were going through failed relationships if your life is not as pleasant as it could be, is it because there are sins that you need to repent of? It's a serious question that needs to be seriously asked. Are there pleasures of this world that you have become enamoured with? Are there sins that you like and cherish? and You allow God to operate in many of the rooms of your heart, but there's still a secret room with a door locked. That God's not permitted to enter into. And God is using suffering, God is using pain to open that door so that you start to turn from that sin. Is God actually using suffering to draw you closer to Him? And if that is true, will you come closer to Him? Or will you try and justify the pain that's in your life in some other way? Remove God from the equation of that pain? Or turn against his hand and deny him? That's not the right thing to do, no. If there is a suffering in your life that is linked to the the unrepentant sin in your life, then you need to repent. You need to turn from that sin. You need to start trusting in the Lord. As we see again and again in the Old Testament, people do. As God brings in a foreign army and pain is there, they cry out to the Lord and turn from their sins. They remove their idols, they put them away and start to worship God. That's one reason that God can bring pain into our lives and it may be that's the case in Naomi. It may be the case in your life. But sometimes God brings pain and suffering into our lives and we don't really know why. A clear example is, of this is the book of Job. You look at the book of Job, there's this man who lives in faithfulness to God and then a series of catastrophes happens in his life. Awful things. And the whole book is basically trying to unpack why has this happened to Job. And at the end, Job gets a response from God. And in one sense, it's not really a response at all. Because God doesn't tell him why it's happened in his life, that he has experienced those catastrophes. Instead, God basically sums up his response with Job 38 verse 2. He says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? What is God saying? Who are you? And he actually asked Job a number of questions to demonstrate that Job is nothing before God. And that when pain and suffering comes into our life, sometimes we just have to let God be God. And we don't know why we don't have the things that we need. We don't know why the relationships that we have are falling apart. We have to say, we cannot darken God's counsel with words without knowledge. We cannot question Him all the time and put ourselves in his shoes and judge him and his actions. We have to let God be God. So there's two responses as to why God brings about suffering. One is that it's unrepentant sin. The other is the answer of we don't know, which we don't like to hear. We want a full answer, but we don't know. And so a biblical Christian must recognise God's sovereignty and suffering. Sometimes you know why, other times you don't. But the question is, what do you do in response to God's hand in suffering? Once you've recognised that it's, his hand is involved, what should you do? Well, my advice to you this morning is don't follow Naomi too far. Naomi is great at recognising God's hand in suffering. But the thing that she doesn't recognise is God's blessing She doesn't recognize God's grace in her life. We should recognize God's hand in suffering, but we should also see God's blessing. We should heed the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, where it says, "'See to it that no one misses the grace of God "'and that no bitter root,' same word, bitter, "'no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many.'" What I mean by same word is that the same Greek word used in Hebrews 12 there is used to translate the Hebrew word for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When you look at verse 20 of Ruth chapter 1 where Naomi is summing up her life as bitter. What does Hebrews 12, 15 say again? See that no one misses the grace of God. Don't miss the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The thing is, when we suffer, there's always grace mixed in there. There's always grace abounding in our lives. And even when you look at Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, yes, she's going through pain and suffering, but did you notice the grace that is evident throughout the chapter as well? Did you see it? What do we see in verse 6? After we see that her husband and sons have died, what happens in verse 6? When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Isn't it interesting that exactly that moment where she needs to go back to her own land and be dependent upon relatives, God is actually providing food there now. The famine is lifted And we see at the end of the chapter that she arrives just as the barley harvest was beginning. The chapter ends on a positive note. Food is actually being reaped in as she's there. She's not showing up and they're still sowing the seed and waiting for a harvest to come in a few months' time. No, she arrives just as lots of food is abundant in the land of Israel. And what else do we see in the chapter? What other graces are there? Well, she's got these two daughters in law. Yes, she's lost her sons, but not before they married. And she's had these two daughters-in-law with her for 10 years. And they desire to stay with her. It's not like as soon as the sons die, they're off. No, they actually desire to stay with her. You read that in verse 7 and following. It says in verse 7, with the two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. They were with her on the way. They were actually intending to go with her. And then in verse 8, Then Naomi said to her da- two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So she tells them to go. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and she said "And said to her, We will go back with you to your people. See, these daughters-in-law, they're actually travelling with her. And then when she tells them go away, they state, No, 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 we'll, we'll go with you. It's okay. They love her. And that's a grace of God there in Naomi's life. And then she gets more insistent. Verse 11, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. She gets very strong with them. And then in verse 14, we read their response. At this, they wept again. They really care for her, which is grace. Grace. In her life, right there in the midst of pain. She's got these girls who cry at the thought of leaving her. And then one does leave. Then Orpa, which means back of the neck, <laughs> um, she kisses her mother in law goodbye and shows the back of her neck and goes, but Ruth clung to her. We can't knock poor Orpa too badly. She did stick with Naomi for a time. But then we've got this other girl, Ruth, who sticks like glue which is grace here in chapter one even in the midst of pain there's this girl who then says these marvelous things in verses 16 and 17 but ruth replied don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you where you go i will go where you stay i will stay your people will be my people and your god my god where you die i will die And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything. But death separates you and me. She's going to stick with her. And till death do we part. She's actually saying, I will be with you till death. And I'll be buried in that country. I will have your people as my people. Your land will be my land. And then this marvelous statement that she says, your God will be my God. What happens here? Ruth is converted to the God of Judaism, the true God of all things. Is that grace or is that suffering? Another example of suffering in poor Naomi's life. No, a daughter in law is converted. Have you ever known someone that you love dearly and they were converted? Was it a time of pain in your life? Was it a time where you said, Call me Mara, this is bitter for me? No, it's a joy for you. Naomi's there and one of her daughters becomes converted. A wonderful joy that is there on the road. And then when she gets back, is it that one knows her and says, go away, we don't like you, we don't remember you. Then not you go down to the land of Moab? When Naomi gets back to the land of Israel, what happens? We read in verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? People are concerned for her when she gets back. It's not like she comes into town and someone... No one really notices. No, the whole town notices. And they're concerned for her. They say, is this Naomi? And so she comes back and she recognizes the bitterness in her life, but she doesn't recognize the bitterness, uh, the, the blessing that God has given her. It's terrible what she says in one sense. In verse 20, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Yes, she's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. But she says, my life is empty. Oh, Ruth, can you pass me a tissue? Is her life empty? She's got this daughter-in-law who's willing to live with her for the rest of her life. And she's going, oh, my life is so terrible. Ruth, it's awful. I've got no one. Ruth, give me a hug. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes at this point. But this is our attitude so often. We will recognise the pain and suffering in our life. And we may have ever even recognise God's hand in it. But there are always silver linings to this pain and suffering. God's grace is still there. God often gives you your daily bread. As I said before, very few of us know what it is to have real hunger, unless you've done some fasting. You don't know what it is to have a real hunger. He gives you daily bread, and he gives you people around you. He, he provided people around Naomi, and if you're part of a good local church or part of a nice extended family, there'll be people in your life that are graces of God towards you. It's a marvellous blessing of a local church, for people who don't have an extended family who can provide for them. I've seen at our church people in desperate need and the church has come to their aid. Why is that? Because the grace of the Lord is being displayed in their life. Yes, they've got pain in their life, but grace is there. They've got people to walk with them through the pain just like Ruth was there to walk through the pain with Naomi. And we must always remember that God's hand is only against us for a time. I love that part in 1 Peter chapter 1 that talks about suffering in our lives, the suffering that we experience and it says it's only for a little while you may have had to go through griefs grief and all kinds of trials, it's only for a little while it's only a little while, you see that with Naomi as we go through the, the book of Ruth, it's only for a little while that she has this pain there is great blessing to come and we must always remember that God's hand was never against us in the way that it was against Christ. We experience pain and suffering, but we never experience it to the extent that Christ experienced the full wrath of God against him for the sin of our lives if we are believers. We will never experience that wrath. See, the thing is, God knows what it is to drink a bitter cup. If anyone should be called Mara, it should be Jesus Christ. He knows what. Bitterness in all its fullness. What we have is just a taste of the bitterness of this world. We will never experience, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that wrath of God, that bitterness, that pain, that suffering that Christ experienced. And that is a grace of God in your life that should help you get through any pain. That you experience. That's the silver lining, the gold lining, the platinum lining of the cloud of darkness that has come over your life. Because you have forgiveness of sins. And so, we as Christians, we must acknowledge the pain and suffering in our lives. When someone at church has trouble, you don't tell them, ignore it, move on. No, acknowledge that pain. Naomi was acknowledging the pain, and we should, and the people around her were acknowledging the pain. But we should be careful about going too far. Because ultimately, there are no Maras in the Christian church. Because our lives are not as bitter as what they should be. They always have grace in them as well. And our lives, on one level, are always pleasant. Because whatever pain or suffering we're going through, there is grace enough to encourage us and build us up as we go through such pain. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this part of your word that reminds us that your hand does bring pain and suffering into our lives, that there is not an area of our life where you are not sovereign. And Lord, this perplexes us as a... Times and we try to somehow remove your hand from suffering and no longer acknowledge you as sovereign or no longer acknowledge you as good. But, Lord, we look at a passage like this and we have to see that your hand is involved in our suffering. But, Lord, we pray that we may not become bitter. May we not miss the grace that is in our lives at the same time. Lord, we pray instead that we may see your marvellous love for us, even in the times of suffering, so that we can push through and walk before you in all godliness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.